Hello everyone, this is Sam Biagetti of Historiansplaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So these lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link will be in the description. And if you can contribute at any level or with any amount, you'll have access to my patron-only lectures on Myths of the Month and the History of the United States in 100 Objects. But now I want to introduce a very special segment about depictions of the 1980s in current television that I recorded a few weeks ago together with my friend, the television critic, Sonia Soraya. And if you listen closely, you may hear contributions from Kali the Cat. So to introduce you, I am here once again. The guest has become the host. I am at the home (laughs) of my good friend, Sonia Soraya. Hi. Who is a television critic who has Mm -hmm. written television criticism, commentary, analysis for a whole variety of outlets, Mm -hmm. uh, including currently as a staff writer for Vanity Fair. Yeah, so accurate. welcome, Sonia. Oh, thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this this is fun. Uh, we've been looking forward to it. Hopefully, mm-hmm. it'll be fun for our audience. We al- we always get into our big conversations, whether or not there's recording happening. So this feels like a yes. nice opportunity. Yes, we always have a lot to chew over. <laughs> we were just having a little royal family discussion, <laughs> working it out. Oh yeah. So when we get into Sam's Meghan Markle thoughts, we'll be ready. We'll, we'll, we'll get to them later. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone wants my expert opinions. But we a few weeks ago, we were talking about history depicted on television, which is, you know, an area of intersection of our fields. And I think we both realized that there's there's definitely a pattern of a lot of shows currently or recently that are grappling in some way with the 1980s and sort of 80s nostalgia Mm -hmm. for one thing has become almost like a like a trend Mm -hmm. right people who are coming of age in their 30s and 40s sort of have these you know gauzy memories of the 80s like aesthetic touchstones more than like any idea what's happening right and often yeah very superficial often you know the fashion the, the the music yeah and obviously Stranger Things comes to mind, which is a show I really like, Yeah. right? And I, I didn't know you really liked it. That's funny. I do. I do. <laughs> I mean, it's not one of my favorite mm-hmm. recent shows, mm-hmm. but I do. I definitely enjoyed it. The last season I just watched, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. my only preparation mm-hmm. for, oh, this for this conversation, <laughs> was watching the last Stranger Things. And I didn't like it as much mm-hmm. as the earlier ones, but, but I thought it was still, I still enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, we thought very quickly, you thought of Chernobyl and When They See Us. There's this whole pattern of shows that are often quite gritty and that seem to be somehow trying to make sense of the 80s in a way that maybe a lot of people couldn't when they were little kids. Yeah. And now as adults, we're trying to kind of excavate what happened and, and in a way like where we came from. And I was born in the 80s myself. I think Me you, too. you were yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. And I have very faint, very faint memories. I vaguely remember being aware, like, George Bush is the president. It's 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's really it. In a way, it's like it's the most current era that I wasn't really prepared to be part of, but that is only memory. Mm. 
And it also happens that it's just sort of long enough in the past that academic scholars and historians are trying to say something about it. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe we can start, we have sort of a few shows we thought of, and I thought maybe we can start with The Americans. And I really liked The Americans Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. I thought it got a little slow, like in the middle, but Mm -hmm. it kind of got really interesting at the end. I really thought the ending was incredible. I just so you know, I was always a little bit on the fence about the show, which actually has something to do with the history element of it, because Mm -hmm. I felt a little bit just like, so you're going to put me in the mindset of like communists who are trying to kill Americans and like I'm supposed to really care about what they're going through, mm. but I'm having a lot of trouble because I keep just wanting them to stop being spies. <laughs> like right. I think they should just quit. Like I don't know. This is not a very good uh, opinion, but I I just struggled with it a little bit. And then by the final season, I just feel like they really started to bring some stuff to bear in a way that like really worked for me. Like mm-hmm. really forcing um, the parents to, for, to to look at what they'd done to their kids, for example, which I think is one of the most interesting parts of the whole thing, which is like, so Elizabeth and, Finney, and Elizabeth and Philip Jennings, who are played by Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese, they themselves were born in the Soviet Union and then mm-hmm. they come over when they're like teenagers and they are assigned to marry each other. They're strangers to each other mm-hmm. otherwise. But then they like, live a family life in the Mm -hmm. suburbs of DC and they have two children who have no idea like who they really are. They have American accents. They do American things. They drive American cars. And then like every few weeks they get these like weird messages and they have to do a mission. (laughs) Yeah. You have to go kidnap someone. You have to go spy on someone. Like steal some data. Blackmail someone. Often they don't know what it's being used for. I mean, Mm -hmm. which is actually one of the most interesting things too is like they're cogs, but they don't know where it's going, but they care so much. And especially, you see both of the characters, both husband and wife over the course of the show, like struggle a little bit with how loyal they want to be to the Soviet Union versus like this country that they live in. But mm-hmm. it, it is like remarkable that like right through, like right through it. I mean, I don't think this is a spoiler. They are like, they, they, they took an oath. Like that's, yes. that's their lives. Well, yeah. it's, it's also interesting that especially early in the show, you see ambivalence and second thoughts on the part of the husband. Yeah. Whereas Elizabeth, the wife is more of a true believer and she, she yeah. doesn't waver in the same way. She's like the ideologue. She's scary. Yeah. yeah she is sometimes scary. And I think that, all of those things you pointed out all kind of relate back to the title and mm-hmm. like this intense irony in the title. And, you know, all the posters of the show, you always see the two of them. They they are the linchpins that everything revolves around. And so you think, okay, so they are the Americans. And is this like a bit of a joke? Because we know that really they aren't. But then on the other hand, are they? Maybe they, maybe they are Americans. They're living in a a conventional middle-class life. They're successfully passing themselves off as Americans. Mm -hmm. And then there's the children. And does does the title apply to the children too, Mm -hmm. who are American-born and who, at least for most of the show, have no idea that they even have any connection to the Soviet Union? It's like there's this constant question of what does it mean to be an American and how do you know that you are an American? Right. And the American identity, like if you look at it from the point of view of other countries, America is very weird. I mean, in all in many different ways. 
But one of the ways that America is weird is that our identity is like very fraught and it's very ideologically charged. It's like you must believe certain things. There's this kind of philosophy of life and these slogans of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and all this that have kind of been used to demarcate who who passes, right, Who or who counts as American. And we'll use phrases like un-American, like doing that, you know, House Un-American Activities Committee. There's no, like, House Un-French Activities <laughs> Committee, right? Like, <laughs> although there is a lot of anxiety now about the French identity and, and Britain and things like that, but... In America, there's always this sort of political charge to being an American. Well, you buy in to mm-hmm. being American. Mm-hmm. Like, you can come from elsewhere, but you buy in. Mm-hmm. And they, de facto, have bought in because they they have a very they have a very suburban life. It's a, it's a very conventional life, the, their undercover life. Yeah. That's actually one of the tensions I enjoy about the show, is that what they find objectionable to America is like an interesting question because they're mm-hmm. very comfortable. Like they have this nice life. They, yeah, they're doing fine. <laughs> they're doing fine. Like they drink coffee in the morning and, and yeah. they go to, and, and over the course of the show, they explore a lot of like the types of uh, social things that people would do in the eighties. Like one of them is the Est group, which I, I think is like one of the most interesting yes. period things yes. where it's kind of like a, Sort of like a self-help group seminar was series. That, was that real? Do you know if Est was I real? I think it was real. Okay. Or I think it... I actually do think it was real, but I I'm, I, I can look it up if you want, like... <laughs> well, that's, but that's really interesting that you point that out because if you look at, like, recent historiography about mm-hmm. the 80s, mm-hmm. like, by historians, that's one of the things that some people point to as, like, this is an important trend of like self-fashioning, self-development, self-help that Mm. started in the 60s and 70s and really continued strongly through the 80s. So the sort of conventional wisdom might be, well, the 80s was a conservative time and it was like a a retrenchment, a return to like the 50s, right? We, We have 80s nostalgia, the 80s had 50s nostalgia. But it really at the same time, there was a lot of social shift to kind of new individualism that came up in the 60s and 70s and then really continued through the 80s and you can see as one of the defining features of the 80s and that the 80s in a lot of ways uh, were not really a return and you can look at Reagan and say well Reagan was a kind of conservative or even you know a, a, a nostalgic reaction return to a kind of idealized older America And yet at the same time, he was a Hollywood actor, he was an entertainer, and he was kind of drawing on popular culture and American consumerism and individualism, right? Mm -hmm. And the Jennings, like, it makes sense in a way to put the Jennings in the 80s, right? They are kind of self-inventing, right? Mm -hmm. They're kind of self-dramatizing, shaping this this image and lifestyle for themselves that works in the context of America. I think it just points to like a lot of paradoxes and tensions, right? About what what was America and how much can America change, right? And how much can people change and it can and how much can it still be a continuity that this is still the same country, this is still the same society. Right. Well, especially when you like put it ideologically opposite the Soviet Union, which mm-hmm, is supposed mm-hmm. to, I mean, at least in some theoretical way, like 
support uh promotes collectivism promotes working towards a shared goal the idea mm-hmm. of the individual yeah. self-determined person uh it's like a convenient american myth and i mean or, or like it, i think it's a real thing that happened but i think it's also it, it really fed into who america wanted to be at that time you know in a way like yeah yeah i mean I, it's interesting because elizabeth in particular questions america more and mm-hmm. she she has an old friend who was a black panther and mm-hmm. that's one of the few times where the show says this era of time isn't that great <laughs> like maybe mm-hmm. people maybe there are things about america that needed to be fixed about this time and it's yeah, yeah. it's really it's it's i mean the show it, it incorporates all these things because on one hand like certainly seems better than soviet russia that's like my casual like political opinion yeah, wouldn't really want to live <laughs> in the soviet union no but on the other hand you can't deny that the eighties are the beginning of like unchecked capitalism on wall street that like these continuing, um, racial divisions, like entrenched and soured and worsened, like after all of the advances of the sixties and seventies, like things started to move back in a different direction in the, in the eighties. What's interesting is that the show forces you to reckon a little bit with like the nostalgia of the period to be like, well, is it really that great? aren't there real reasons that someone might not want this to work? Yeah, it's trying to take, I think a lot of these shows are trying to advance to like a more adult view and like more of a reckoning with the 80s and with the contradictions and the unresolved tensions that then continue. And, you know, the 80s were the last period of the Cold War, Mm, right? mm. And so the Cold War gives you this easy kind of binary opposition of us and them. We we know who we are we know what we stand for we know what an american is because we are the opposite of them you know east versus west communism versus capitalism right but then it i think the americans is is a show that sort of throws a wrench into it all by saying well what about someone who is like doing both Mm -hmm. what about someone who is completely immersed on both sides Mm -hmm. and like what kind of confusion and crisis are they maybe going through if they're if they're living both and like some people did i don't think the show is realistic in the sense that nobody could have been doing all of those things like running all those operations and raising two kids and running a business (laughs) they seem to be more effective at being spies than any russian spies on american soil were like based on what we know it sort of seems like the like i read this new york times article that was about like the remember there was like eight Russian spies that they found who had like Facebook profiles and had found in America. Yeah. And like the things that they were do were like, well, we'll read the headlines and send them back to them because like, they're not supposed to know that kind of thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like the wildest, like infiltration. It, it's a different, not exactly it's James a different Bond. society, right? Yeah. yeah it's, not it's James different. Bond level. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. But, but what's interesting, I think then, and that might explain part of why there's this fascination with the 80s is that we know that shortly after the Cold War did end and there was this American triumphalism in the 90s of like, we've figured it out, right? End of history. End of history, right? right. Francis Fukuyama will never live down that headline. End of history. Nor, nor should he. Yeah, right. You right, right click bait, you get, you get dragged. Yeah, right, it. right. Yeah. You get dragged. So mm. it's, there's this period then of of thinking that the american way of life american liberal democracy has basically won the contest of history Mm. everything is resolved now 
and everybody wants to be American, right? The Eastern Bloc, South Africa, right? After apartheid, oh, we'll just privatize everything, make it like America. Uh, India, and, India's economy liberalized in 1992. That was like mm-hmm, a big thing, I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And of yeah. course, Britain was already doing this, right? Mm-hmm. The Thatcher and after Thatcher period. And But then it's like, but wait a second, but if everybody is like America, then what's America? Who's America? Right? We're yeah. right back to this confusion about what... How do we know what America is about? Where are we going? Are we just kind of like going off into this endless sunset? So I think there's a lot of anxiety now that's come back, right? And and if you don't have this clear ideological divide of here's what America is about, here's what Americanism is, then I think, part, in my opinion, that's part of why some people are turning more towards racial like a racial definition of like, mm. that's how we demarcate who counts as American mm-hmm. and who doesn't, mm. right? So all of these other shows we mentioned all kind of touch on, I think, a lot of these same problems. Yeah, yeah. Stranger Things has the most like nostalgic take mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. But I think that it actually, it is nostalgic for the simplicity of the us them dichotomy the like mm-hmm. well we're these guys mm-hmm. and they're the like, red army <laughs> in the yeah. third season of stranger things the bad guys are russians like mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. which is like very and funny. they wear like the red caps like the we're russian army yeah. yeah right it's like it's a really wild and they're they have like an underground bunker it's like very mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. a very uh it's like hacky a little like but i think on purpose sort of like these are the touchstones of identity, American identity at this time. And yeah. the other thing about Stranger Things is it's like it's pre-globalization, it's pre-internet. So it's this uh-huh. hermetically sealed kind of American childhood, perhaps, that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and well, in the, the fictitious Hawkins, Indiana, is like this, you know, very cleaned up, simple little American microcosm, right? Oh no! That I'm worried that she's sleeping on the connections, but I'm just gonna okay. Move that, this as long as she's not bit. chewing them, she's that's not, fine. No, she's not gonna. She's not gonna <laughs> she just wants to sit with us. We have, yeah. we have, we have a okay, cat commentator too. Hi, Kelly. You want to make a noise for us? No, no noise. She's sniffing the she's, microphone. She's she's sniffing. She's, sniffing. she's curious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we got any. Uh, if we got any content from her, but anyway, we, we, we may, we may later. We'll get a ca- we'll get a comment. But yeah, Stranger Things, I feel like the third season was not the greatest TV I've seen, right? Mm-hmm. Although I enjoyed it. But it does, I think, consciously pack in so much of of these themes. And that season in particular, the third season, mm-hmm. is like this testament to the mall. The, it's like a mall. monument to the right. mall. And yeah. as they say, the mall is supplanting Main Street, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like if you were to think... Okay, what is like a microcosm embodiment of America circa 1910 or 1920? You'd picture a main street with the shops and the diner, right? In the 80s, it's now a mall, mm-hmm. right? And so there's no post office, there's no church, there's no library. Right. It's just stores. Right. And you 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 hear music and you buy clothes. Mm-hmm. Like this is now kind of like America being enacted is the mall, mm-hmm. right? And it's so evocative, I think, now, because now the malls are closing. Now it's like, okay, so what even fills that role now? They filmed that <laughs> in an abandoned mall in Georgia. I believe it's in rural oh. Georgia, where Whoa. they were like, if it wasn't abandoned, it was just like very like low use because all of the storefronts are, were like old. Like they, they were able to use, you know. This, it was like, like hermetically sealed. It basically. was like a leftover mall. Yeah. And I have seen some malls. Mm. I didn't even, I was not even prepared. Like a few times I've gone to a couple of malls in New England and I was like, 
all those storefronts are empty. There are five people here. They're like, like weird time capsules. Yeah. They're weird yeah. time capsules. Because the stuff that's left is weird. Like the stuff that uh-huh. still works. But then also sometimes you'll just have like the old signs or like the old buildings. Just sitting there. Just sitting there. There's, yeah. there's one that I saw where they clearly the rent was so low. There was mm. so little demand that some people were just renting stores for their own storage. Mm-hmm. And were just putting like their clothes and furniture in there. Mm-hmm. And they weren't even stores. It's mm. just like, here's somebody's junk. And then like you know, a department store. A lot of times it's clearly a import export shop front. That's like, you know, a bunch of stuff like a container ship from overseas somewhere where they make these things mm-hmm, cheaply. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then it's like one guy's got one, this one pack like container of stuff, but they're just going to sell it out of the storefront. And it's always like, not super great quality, but nothing at the mall was ever super great quality. Yeah. It's sort of like everyone's figured out globalization now. Like it's not just the Gap yeah. and Express. It's like you know now everyone's making Anybody, things overseas, yeah, and yeah. we can do that on the internet now. Like I don't know. It's it's like it's like the full the capitalism full circle is what it feels like. It's just like first we outsourced, like first we got rid of Main Street. And then you have this mall thing and you thought that was going to be the end stage, but actually it's just going to be even smaller until it's just, you know, someone has a storefront on their computer and someone buys it on their other computer and that's all capitalism really needs. It's arbitrage. We can do arbitrage. Yeah. Yeah. And some people, you know, there's like a notion that, well, the malls and retail are being undercut because of Amazon and internet. And that's true to some degree, but really it's more just the middle class is now poor. Mm-hmm. Like pe- middle class people just don't shop for extra stuff anymore. Or when they rarely do, they might do it online. Right. It's really like the whole shift. It's the concentration of wealth. It's yeah. So that kind of like Hawkins, Indiana, you know, again, Hawkins, Indiana is a simulacrum of something that doesn't really exist. But right. now even that doesn't exist as a, as a simulacrum, right? Like yeah. this is not what towns look like anymore. And it's not what malls look like. Um, but... When I think of Stranger Things, you know, there are also there are these moments where they capture in this funny, you know, in this weird, distorted way, they capture like Cold War paranoia. Mm. Like we're going to get our own binoculars and look for Russians. And there's a point where they're like looking and they see a guy dressed in dark clothes carrying a package and they think he must be a Russian. It turns out he's an aerobics instructor. And it's kind of like it captures this feeling of somehow it's almost integral to America to be afraid of foreign infiltration, to be afraid of Russian infiltration. Mm. It's like part of what Americans do Mm -hmm. is like watch out for Russians who are our opposite, but are also similar enough to us that they could pass, that they could trick us. Right. And so I think like it's the same situation in the Americans, just like seen from, the other viewpoint Mm -hmm. of like where are the Russians coming and hiding and also I I liked the earlier seasons more Mm. I thought they were more intriguing Mm. and they're all these great people I mean Winona Ryder is Mm. so great Mm. and like always I think fascinating to watch and herself an 80s touchstone yeah yeah right (laughs) she's like an 80s reference acting in the show and I thought what to me what was really interesting about Stranger Things was the same thing that really got me initially interested in Game of Thrones was seeing this distorted other parallel world which is in Stranger Things it's the upside down right and so it's like in this whole kind of tradition of fantasy and science fiction of 
creating like a weird like misshapen mimicry of our world right like like Alice in Wonderland like mm. Will is a lot like Alice in Wonderland mm. it's like a darker even mm. Alice in Wonderland mm. and mm. Alice in Wonderland originally is Alice through the looking glass mm -hmm. right it's you but flipped it's the scary inverted version of you and so I was so fascinated with like what is the upside down and how does it work and and what is it how does it reflect us what is the relationship yeah right yeah and it doesn't really go anywhere and it crossed my mind i was like well maybe this is part of why it's in this 80s show is that like it has this cold war background of like there's this other country out there right that's like us but it's like the opposite it's like our evil mirror image right and then in the third season they just make it explicit they oh. don't really do anything more but they do have the lifeguard character mm -hmm. right billy mm -hmm. he I was I was a bit confused. I, I wasn't sure I understood. Does he go to the un the upside down and come back and he's changed, or does he switch with his mirror image? Oh, that's a good question. Because I thought initially that was what was happening was that it's like his doppelganger. I think it is his doppelganger because aren't every doesn't everyone come back like zombified like from the big the mind flayer? Yeah, the mind flayer somehow like gets into their bodies and they they change. And so I thought initially it was like, okay, he meets his evil doppelganger in yeah. like the parallel world who then comes and takes his place in right. the real world, which yeah. is like something That's that happens in folklore yeah. all the time, yeah. like old European folklore, like your evil doppelganger replaces you. And you have to think about like, would my family know that it wasn't me? And they explicitly have a scene with his family, right? Like, or yeah, with his, his and, and his family are loving it. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. They're like, this is great. This is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, and and that also resonates with the Americans, right? Where the Americans they took the identities of they, two people who they, had died. They right? are the mirror images. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. something I think spies really do do. Yeah. My, I'm in my understanding. Take like a real. They'll find yeah. someone who died very early in life and is obscure mm. and take their names mm -hmm. and have a fake birth certificate and so on. So I think it almost touches on this like deep kind of existential anxiety right again about identity of like who am i and like could someone who looked and sounded like me just take my place mm -hmm. or like what would what would happen in the world you know this is really that's really interesting because i think that um one of the things that i have noted about the 80s stories and there's a little bit of like 90s nostalgia too that's like sort of on the edge of coming of like returning like you know there's the monica lewinsky series coming up mm -hmm. and there's the mm -hmm. um what was the other one the oj simpson series um so those yeah. are both like you yeah. know early 90s mid 90s but i think that they kind of point to the same thing which is the sort of feeling that like the official story wasn't the real story or like the what was visible there was something visible and something hidden in in the narrative. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I know that you're talking about something more explicit with the flipping, but that's the upside down actually immediately made me think about that because, and I'm just going to go into the other shows, but like with When They See Us, mm -hmm. you, you see this intense conflict between how people see the kids mm -hmm. and who the kids really are and you are forced to see the kids and I, I do think mm -hmm. that the title is very explicit on that front like when they see us will they ever see us as who we really are mm -hmm. but in the meantime the whole construction of that time at that time the Central Park Five is turns them into horrible doppelgangers you know they're not really yeah, who they are yeah yeah monstrous versions of themselves of themselves yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And I think Ava DuVernay is very conscious about insisting that you see the events unfold from their point of view. Yeah. You know, and that because a certain number of people already are aware of the story and they might think, oh, well, it's bad. They got falsely accused and then later they got exonerated. And yeah. some people, of course, don't still don't even still, accept that. Still don't right? accept that, yeah. <laughs> which, is, it, which is a whole other incredible thing unto itself. Yeah. But that that she insists that you are in their shoes for a moment in this mediated way, seeing the way they're being questioned, the way they're being trapped, right? The way they're being deceived and how that pulls them in to this situation beyond their control. And they're not being seen. I mean, I mm -hmm. think that, yeah. that that's like mm -hmm. an other interesting, like to go to your sort of mirror thing, like... Mm -hmm. They, they remade a video with Corey, who's like, has the most tragic story of the five, I, I would mm -hmm. say, because mm -hmm. he um he was put in solitary. He was an adult, so he was put in solitary and confined yeah. for many years. So when they get him to say something on tape, you know, when they recreate this, this video, and it's actually very, like, nostalgic the way that they recreate it, because, like, there's a Pepsi can on the, and they made sure they got, like, the right label Pepsi can to put on, like, this little desk, and he's wearing this graphic sweatshirt, and when you watch the real video, it looks less period than the remake because it's like, they, it seems <laughs> like they, going, they oh, really go for the it. Way, yeah. But it's like not convinced. Like, it's, I don't know what to say. It's not convincing. He says the way he talks about rape, he's like, yeah, I, do, I did it. Like I did it to her. He doesn't know what he's saying. Like he doesn't yeah. know what he's talking about. It feels like the, the difficulty of seeing what it really is seeing the situation for what it really is mm -hmm. that it takes so long to do for so many people or or that at the time for for whatever reason no one could see it the way it was or only a few people could see it the way it was and it takes so like it's really striking well, yeah you see yeah and you see how law enforcement have this control mm -hmm. over what the public sees and hears and mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. and there can be so much production and so much coercion that goes on for so long before anyone even gets any information like they are the curators and they they kind of control the story and they control the image that that people see it's a very pre-social media thing too mm -hmm. i mean it, it mm -hmm. I, there has been stuff talked about written about about how like the way that the narrative around police brutality, police misconduct has changed now that we have smartphones and we can catch them in the act. I mean, it doesn't actually change the outcomes necessarily, but it's amazing how much more control we have over the narrative than we did in this It's time. a tremendous change right. factor, yeah. you know, and it's not like these incidents just started 10 years ago. They've right. been going on for centuries. Right. But like now there's this whole other channel oh. where people can become aware of these things in a different way. And obviously Donald Trump is kind of looming and is, is hinted at repeatedly all through the all, show. All of these 80s things, actually, I feel like he's a mm, little bit mm. just, you know, he's a gag at this time. Like he's he's a he joke. Is, he's a yeah. symbol of, of Wall Street, whatever, or, you know, Manhattan greed, whatever. Yeah, Manhattan real estate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But clearly, I think with When They See Us, it's like. The attack happened in 1989. Most of those the events in the show happened in 1989. It's like right at, in fact, I think it was November 1989, like just as the Cold War was about to end. It's the summer, but the, maybe okay. the trial happened in the, because this, it's like the mm -hmm. heat. It mm -hmm. was like a heat wave and stuff. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. The attack yeah. was in the summer of 1989. Yeah. Right. yeah. And, but that's when the Cold War is ending. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And well, it's extraordinary to me that in, so in the autumn, I think the trials began in the autumn, mm. 1989. 
and there's clearly there's there's paranoia there's you know classic racist assumptions that black men are dangerous they're animalistic right wilding wolf packs traveling in packs right traveling Traveling in packs packs, yeah. yeah talking about them as these animal creatures predators even when you're talking about young boys right because another racist assumption is that there like are no black children. They're like immediately adults, <laughs> right? Right, and yeah. they all have to be treated like like adults. And the youngest was fourteen. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are they're like barely high school age, mm-hmm. and and they're treated as both as adults and as and as like dangerous animals that have to be controlled both at once. And so there's clearly this carryover from the Jim Crow era, right? And even even before the Jim Crow era. Even though the Jim Crow era, first of all, the Jim Crow era is supposed to be over, right? Formalistically, it's supposed to be over after the Civil Rights Act, right? Yeah. And it's the North, right? We're not talking about right. the Deep South here. We're right. talking about New York City. Right. So it's it's so striking. And then to think that people who were somehow involved in this are still important and still have power now. Like there's no there's no rupture point. Right. I think it's and I think in a way it's this show is doing a lot of the same sort of work that some scholars are doing of saying, no, 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 there are these trends and patterns that continued right through the 1980s, mm-hmm. right? And that we're still kind of playing out so now. It, so it's not the inflection point that it might seem to be no, in some no. in, so, in certain significant ways. In, yeah. some, in some ways, in some not. It's yeah. more like there's, there's more like endless cycles. Yeah. And so something else I thought of was, wait a second, 1989, isn't that when... David Dinkins came in, oh. right? So the first black mayor of New York was oh. actually elected oh. that November, wow. November 1989, oh. within days. Wow. Well, I won't give it away. I have another little personal end of Cold War story. Oh, really? That I want to tell that I, that's really great. My <laughs> mother's birthday's in November, uh-huh. November 9th, and she was working for the Canadian Broadcasting Company at right. that time with... Uh, she was like an editor working with journalists and one of them was a very accomplished very hardworking journalist and and she said Brian it's my birthday we're going out we're all going out to have a nice long lunch and have drinks for my birthday and he said but I can't I can't stay out for long what if something happens my mother said nothing's gonna happen oh. nothing's gonna happen <laughs> don't worry Brian you know it's just a little while they get back to the office the Berlin Wall has fallen <laughs> So yeah, everything, everything's wow. happening around them. Wow. And then it, that was within a few days, I believe, of when Dinkins was elected mayor. Wow. So you have the first black mayor coming yeah. into office at the same time that you have this law enforcement system, like right. we've been talking about, right. using all of this racist rhetoric. Miscarriage of justice. like Total mi- miscarriage of justice that isn't resolved for years yeah. or really is never resolved. It ends right. up costing the city a ton of money, by the way. Right. Yeah. As many of yeah. as police misconduct and mm-hmm. prosecution misconduct often does. Mm-hmm. It costs taxpayers millions. Mm. And then you think, okay, there's this echo here where we're also thinking about Donald Trump in the background. Yeah. And it's like, okay, 20 years later, you get... Barack Obama, first black president, followed by Trump. And in New York, you have Dinkins, first black mayor, is immediately followed by Giuliani, who some Uh, people see as like a reaction to. Conservative, yeah. Yeah, Well, it's certainly a a law and order candidate, right? Absolutely. Prosecutor, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and that's interesting because I think that so what one of the things we were talking about earlier was like the con like how do you know if you're really American? Like how do you what's the actual test? What really makes us all American for being here? And I think that what when they see us really illustrates is that there were all kinds of Americans who weren't passing the test. Like that there is mm-hmm. there is real doubt as to who the Americans are, like Mm-hmm. throughout this period of time yeah. um or if not maybe doubt's not the right word but certainly certainly confusion because when you talk about what being american is i think i mean if we want to go down to like ideologically especially in contrast to the soviet union what we would say is things like you know we have due process we have your you have a right to be heard you you are innocent until proven guilty there aren't going to be any secret trials there aren't you're not mm-hmm, going to get shot mm-hmm, in the street mm-hmm. you know whatever it is and you see all these things happen in the americans like they're not subtle about about soviet justice or anything like that but then it's mm-hmm. like that's just not the case like we have defined ourselves as being these different people but we are not like that, yeah, that seems yeah. to be sort of there's what this, I'm taking from there's it. this yeah. like ideological structure to things but i also thought when they see us sort of illustrated this dilemma where we have all of these processes and procedures where people have to judge and weigh do we have evidence to suspect this person do we have evidence to charge this person do we have evidence to convict them and you're supposed to have a jury and yet the assumption running through it all is that the people making those judgments are going to judge based on evidence, right? That they're actually going to weigh evidence rather than just pick the conclusion they want and run with it, right? And there's this feeling of inexorability, which I think Ava DuVernay also really wants to capture, that like once the gears were in motion, there was sort of no stopping it. And it didn't matter what the arguments or counter arguments were. Someone had come to the conclusion. I thought to me the most amazing scene that that stuck with me actually was when the police investigator speaks with the prosecutor and the prosecutor is extremely skeptical of the case and is saying i this doesn't look strong to me yeah and yet she never contemplates well then maybe they didn't do it she doesn't drop the charges (laughs) no no no. we're still we're still prosecuting them as if they did it i just want it to be stronger so i can get a win but there's no there's no moment of reflection of like maybe our conclusion is wrong here and we should go back to the drawing board right so i'm I'm gonna derail us for one second because i think that what's also like what's interesting about that is like the Central Park Five were target, you know, targeted and, and fixated on the way they were because of it was this high-profile rape case in Central Park. Yeah. The first episode of The Americans has a rape too. For a, it's a it's a flashback. It's when Elizabeth is recalling that her trainer, uh, mm-hmm. her Soviet mm-hmm. trainer, mm-hmm. assaulted her terribly, like right before she came to America. And I mm-hmm. think that like the way that other people react to assault is like an interesting like seed here. Mm-hmm. Like I think that there's, and you see this come up later because then OJ Simpson is just a few years later where mm-hmm. it doesn't really become about what happened anymore. It's just that people need just, people need some sort of closure to the narrative, like some sort of like, we did something about this. Like we didn't feel safe. So now we have to feel safe in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And and did you, did you see the whole incident where Liam Neeson was speaking about his past recently and he said that he'd used the n-word at some point right well that may have been part of it Mm. but basically Mm. he said i had a very good friend Mm. who was raped Mm. i think this was in the 1960s maybe Mm. and it was very upsetting to him and she said that the attacker was black 
and they may not they didn't really have a lot of other information so liam neeson said i had a very strong impulse to go attack a black person mm. like as retribution mm-hmm. and he said he like trolled around african-american neighborhoods basically looking for a fight Oof. as like a tit for tat and you know obviously that's extremely upsetting and like frightening he, now by the way i remember it wasn't him it was vigo mortensen with the n-word sorry to okay Neeson. <laughs> carry, carry, carry on but yeah. he didn't use the he did, as far as i know he did say this other insane thing but yeah yeah and and you know people questioned him about this and said how could you think such a thing how could you react that way and for one thing he related it to his upbringing in ireland and said well there would be an attack there would be a bombing in a catholic bar roman catholics would go and retaliate against protestants and it was like this endless tit for tat and it's like i thought well that's very interesting that he relates it to that but also that it translates so easily into like the american mindset of Mm, like mm. a white woman is attacked Mm -hmm. you take out retribution on black people right like regardless of whether any, it's the person any or black not, right, any yeah. black person because they're, I they're mean, interchangeable the, yeah 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 you treat them as interchangeable it's yeah. like it's amazing how it's it's really thought-provoking and kind of disturbing how easily it translated into that yeah and but also the as for like the miscarriage of justice it's like it depends on what exactly you mean and what you're thinking of as justice right like who how does it matter to you like who specifically individually is guilty and in what way there are still some people who are like i don't care who don't accept the exoneration yeah, including yeah. the prosecutor yeah i don't remember her name linda fairstein fairchild that fairstein? sounds right yeah. fairstein yeah yeah, yeah yeah and that she still thinks she did everything right she like wrote an op-ed to the effect it was really upsetting yeah amazing no the city of new york has exonerated them and paid them like reparations like just to be clear like yeah, there's yeah. no there's, there's like no, no one has any doubt about this but yeah, yeah there's no. no reasonable doubt and yeah. well and it shouldn't from the very beginning the evidence pointed to one attacker right. not a group of five kids so right. it clearly like this doesn't seem to matter it's just get a conviction blame someone get a conviction and it made me think when i was thinking about this i remembered Uh, a very, very thought-provoking academic article that I read from like the 1970s that someone pointed back to when talking about different cases that our system of punishment and justice in quotation marks has been so taken over by plea bargaining, right? And the sort of philosophy of plea bargaining is you bring pressure to bear and get a confession and then you don't need to do a trial. You don't need to weigh the evidence. You need. You don't need to have a jury. Right. You just do what you need to do to get them to confess to something. And then right. you can say, we we caught them. This person is guilty. And there's a line in When They See Us where one of them says, well, there's sort of no way to get past the confession. Once people see you confessed, it's like all thought shuts down. It's just like, that's it. And this article said, look, this plea bargaining very closely mimics late medieval and early modern torture like you have a crime the burden of proof is very high right it's hard to prove a case there's so what you do is you pick someone you suspect and if you don't have good enough evidence you torture them or threaten them with torture right you and get a confession you bully them and isolate them and yeah yeah until you get the and then the confession solves everything and outright lie to them i mean which is Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that's very interesting i mean that actually like i hadn't really thought about this before but 
so let's I'm jumping again but let's jump to Chernobyl for a second yeah. which takes place the set of 1986 which is when the Chernobyl nuclear reactor blew because I think that that series is really it's it's fully in the Soviet Union and it's really mm-hmm. like how is the Soviet Union different from America mm-hmm. and it's really interesting that they don't say that the difference is the criminal justice system <laughs> or like mm. what they say is that Americans are well that at least the Soviets are just so afraid of the truth that they cannot face the truth of what was happening that the the failures of the Chernobyl reactor fire is that on every single level pr- pretty much on every single level people could not wrap their heads around what was really happening because it was so bad and they were so afraid of being the person to say we did this we were the ones that fucked this up that mm-hmm. like all the way up the chain, everyone's letting these horrible statistics like fly by. These numbers are right. way too high. And they're so locked into an ideology and, and their own propaganda that they don't really face right. up to it. Yeah. Right. But but are we really so not in, are we really invulnerable to our own propaganda? I mean, I think this yeah. is like the thing. Like I think that there's like it's very easy for us right now to be like, oh, like the Soviet Union in 1986, like we would never do this. But I think we have proven that we can lie to ourselves really extensively. And so I find myself, like it's really interesting to me that when they see us in Chernobyl, like existed in the same year, because it's both like, it's like, here's where the Soviets Mm, could have went really wrong. Here's where the Americans went really wrong too. Like, yeah, massive denial. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I thought Chernobyl was very powerful. I think you did. Yeah. You did too. Yeah. And I thought it was very complicated, like exactly what to make of it. And there were many points where I was I was kind of trying to make sense of of what I was seeing on top of just like the overwhelming tension of of the massive even greater disaster that almost happened, right. right? Which I did not know. Which I guess if all of the reactors had blown. Yeah, if it had sort of melted down unlimited out of control right it would have they then they all would have blown right and they would have burned down into the earth till they hit the water table and created a massive thermal explosion and isn't there there's one scene i think where where he's explaining to to gorbachev and the politburo he Mm -hmm. says well if they burn down and reach the water table it'll create a thermonuclear explosion and europe will be uninhabitable like it will destroy europe wow and to me, the number one thing I thought was, why on earth would anyone create such a huge concentration of destructive power in one place in the first place? Like, why did you even create this situation mm-hmm. to start? Mm-hmm. Now now you're cleaning up the mess, mm-hmm. right? But why did you set this up in the first place? And the Soviets are not the only pr- people who did that. Mm-mm. Like, I, you know, I know that there's like many different opinions about nuclear power, mm. but my opinion is like, don't be so naive to mm-hmm. think this is all going to work perfectly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What could possibly go wrong? You know, like you could destroy a continent if you don't perfectly control this huge destructive reactor you created. And and that is a backdrop to this whole thing. I mean, we mm-hmm. the atomic age is like really, I guess, refers to the 60s. But we we knew to some degree that we were living in the shadow of this threat. Like, I don't think everyone knew the complete details of exactly what nuclear radiation would do to you, but like it was still the height of the cold war. That was still, that was still the closest apocalypse that people thought of. I think was Mm -hmm. like nuclear Mm -hmm. apocalypse. Like that's how the world's going to end. And it is like, it is interesting that 
it this was an era where the most powerful people in the world were playing with playing with atoms in a way that was incredibly destructive i mean yeah i i was reading about missile tests i was reading about the soviet missile tests Mm -hmm. they did one (laughs) that was like no it's really crazy the biggest bomb that they ever tested is called the czar bomber it was half the size of the one that they designed the biggest nuclear bomb ever designed so they tested one that was half the size okay the blast radius of hiroshima was a mile when they dropped the Sarbama and it was like the super Arctic Peninsula, 34 miles away, buildings were oh flattened. Wow. 62 miles away, you could have gotten a third degree burn. A third degree burn. Whoa. It's insanity oh my that God. anyone was fooling around with this stuff. Like, it's not yeah. like, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, it's. And, and, I, and I think that's part of what, like, Dr. Strangelove was trying to capture was mm-hmm. like, all of these things are ridiculous they're outrageous and yet in the logic of the cold war it's always just like well we're just taking the next step every step just seems like the logical next step until you are in total astronomical madness right right so clearly there's like a double cold war resonance and on the one hand we're looking at the last years of the soviet union and chernobyl was one of the factors that helped Right. Weaken right. the final years of the Soviet Union. Which I ne- I did not know before the series. And then the series yeah. at the end yeah. suggested, and I was like, oh, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, was, it was part of it. It's mm. like, okay, people really had to come face to face with like, we can't just take what the government tells us seriously. Like, we just don't. Well, and they're serious. Right, because we can't. They have massive failures. In their yeah, yeah. They don't Every, everyone like. knows that was, yeah, <laughs> the, things yeah. are blowing up. But I thought with Chernobyl, there was a, there was definitely a pattern in the show of showcasing like the heroic individual mm-hmm. standing up to the dysfunctional system, mm-hmm. which it's very anti-Russian. I mean, very anti-Soviet in very a way. Very anti-Soviet, yeah. But then is very pro the average Russian person. Like, right. yeah, there was both. Yeah. There was both, and I thought it was interesting how they make a point of showing you all the people who were critical in getting a handle on this disaster and making sure it wasn't a thousand times worse. They don't even show you all of them because Emily Watson's character Mm -hmm. is like a composite. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was like a couple of people. She's like a composite of like 50 scientists that apparently uh, Jared Harris's character took the lead. But in the photos of him at Chernobyl, he's like surrounded by like 20, 30 scientists who were all over the place. And again, this is heroism. They're all over the place in Russia and they're seeing these readings that are like crisis, crisis, crisis. And they Mm -hmm. go towards it. They all go towards it. They're like, we have to prevent this from getting worse. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 And so there's a weird, there's a fine line, right? Where the show shows you one individual who figures out the radiation is coming from outside and Mm -hmm. she acts and she's critical. And yet really it was, it was dozens of people who took action like that. And so you have to ask, well, at what point, you have to say, well, in some ways the system worked. Mm. In some ways there were people in place who knew what their job was. They they faced up to how bad the crisis was. They acted and they got the job done. Mm. So it's like, don't you kind of also have to give some credit mm. to the ways in which the system also worked? And the way the show presents it, it's like they don't they don't exactly say you shouldn't see it that way, but they do emphasize the individuals, mm. right? And how you you're making this individual sacrifice that the country much of the time isn't going to appreciate right like the the main 
engineer, the Jared Harris mm -hmm. central character, is told like your legacy is going to be erased. Right. Like we haven't, we do not appreciate what you did at all. And I don't know how accurate that particular detail is, but clearly that's sort of how they the show wraps up the story. Oh yes, that part is accurate. He killed himself in part to get his story out there to get his story further. Out. Okay. Like, well. Mm -hmm. He, I think he knew that it would get some attention to the tapes he was recording, and okay. then those tapes became like underground circulated right. throughout the scientists. Right. Like many and, things did in the Soviet Union, yeah. they sort of there's almost like this this like demi bond of mm. like circulated mm. writings, music, everything. Yeah, yeah. So it's it kind of I guess it sort of straddles that line, right? And it is giving you more of an American point of view. It's giving you. And partly it's also just the fact that the Soviet Union was on its last legs. Mm -hmm. A lot of people knew that or perceived it to some degree. The Soviet Union's now gone. Yeah. So it's like nobody really has much of an interest now in like defending like, no, we did okay. <laughs> like we did save lives by how we handled that particular disaster. And I thought it was great how they showed the mine workers and the maintenance workers and all these people who put themselves in danger and sometimes did die yeah. because they knew like we have to face this and but it's interesting because dramatically they they made for great great screen moments but most of the work that like those miners did or the people who were throwing things off the roof people who put themselves in the most harm's way did like minimal actual help you know what i mean like well, they could only do, in that case, they could only do a little bit do a before they got the completely irradiated. <laughs> but I think that I'm thinking through your, your notion of the system works because the system works assuming that you have the ability to waste 2,000 to 5,000 people yeah. per thing. Mm -hmm. I think that like mm -hmm. the numbers for Chernobyl are all over the place because they don't know how many people like got cancer or something from the radiation afterwards. But like it was a messy trial and error cleanup process. Yeah. And <laughs> a, a lot of, there were a lot of expendable people were expendable who were people. thrown into there the situation. Yeah, much as the same as what happened and they sort of refer back to this a little bit obliquely in the show, much as happened in World War II when you know, Stalin said, all right, we have to throw everything we can against this German invasion to save the Soviet Union. And he was like, well, I guess 20, 25 million people are basically expendable. I mean, so many people it's, were thrown. Isn't it like 40 million people? 40 million Russians died in World War II? Like, it's like that a might crazy, be right. yeah. it's a crazy yeah. number. It's, yeah. it's, it's like 100 times as many as Americans. As the next ones, yeah, yeah. And they refer to it, customarily, they refer to it as the Great Patriotic War. And there are even quotes where people spoke to Stalin and people said, you know, because there were a lot of Western communists who were very supportive yeah. and would go and and people spoke to Stalin and said, it's so inspiring how all of these people are out there ready to sacrifice themselves for communism and the workers' revolution. And Stalin himself said, oh, no, they're not doing it for the workers' revolution. They're sacrificing themselves for Mother Russia. That's what this is like. He and knew. what's the difference? <laughs> well, no, I, I genuinely want to know because it's relevant, right? Because now we have Russia yeah. ascendant again, but it's not communist yeah. Russia. It's oligarch capitalist Russia. Yeah, it's this weird hodgepodge plutocracy of Russia. And I mean, at the time, there was this split between Stalinists and Trotskyists, right? right? And Trotskyists were upset because they... They believed the Soviet Union and Stalin were not doing enough 
to spread the workers' revolution, that they saw this as the beginning of a worldwide proletarian right. revolution. I feel like they were probably correct on that front, that the Stalinists probably weren't doing a ton. To no, make well, it and Stalin didn't I don't care. think he didn't care. <laughs> that's, that's what no. I'm about to say. No, Stalin was a power player. Okay. Yeah, so, so Stalin, in his view, he thought, I can somehow retrench. It's, it's like, I can retrench and have it both ways, I think was his thinking, was like, stand for communism and and global revolution but also really consolidate and protect the interests of russia and he's the one who made like the pact with the nazis right mm -hmm. the the molotov ribbentrop pact of like well we'll just divide poland mm -hmm. you know which was shocking to some people like you can't make deals with fascists mm. and stalin was like yeah watch me well and i and i think the idea of russia as being Russia as being communist is, quote-unquote communist, is always the bogeyman, but really it's that Russia was an autocracy, I think. And I think mm -hmm. the idea, like the idea of the Cold War is technically capitalism versus communism, but I think arguably it's really just an autocracy and another autocracy, like trying to figure out if they can coexist. Because I, yeah. not, to, not to be super cynical. Right, and w whether you call one or another country an autocracy, there is this debate, I know, in Cold War scholarship which is like becoming more of an intense field i think there's a debate between people who say this was a matter of ideological contest and the world kind of had to figure out where they fit in this ideological feud or is it just two great powers figuring it's out who's going to be contest. top that's, dog that's yeah. what it i mean well yeah. and and to go you know you were saying the thing with like dinkins followed by giuliani and obama followed by trump because i think the other thing that's like interesting about the 80s nostalgia is like the russians are back like the um the americans when it was greenlit uh people were like on one hand people were like oh like why is like why would we do a cold war thing right now and then also like that story about these eight sleeper russian agents had like just emerged and even though they didn't do anything super effective it was like there's russian spies here that's, it's like that's a thing it's that 2000, happens it's 2005 yeah. cut to like russia's meddling in our elections we have like serious national security problems our president is compromised blah 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 it's yeah it's intriguing like it's just an interesting new a, a, the same foe with a different hat i feel like a different like now now they're now they're capitalists too yeah i think this is a big question that people are going to have to grapple with for a long time is like some people say well, we're sort of in a new cold war and and other people really reject that and i think it's very confusing like part of what's happening i think is that we're seeing that russia the russian government has certain strategies because they don't have anything like the military power they used to. I mean, their GDP is like less than Italy. Like, really? Yeah. It's like they've, they, in a lot of ways, they've been really diminished. Mm. And they're sort of scrambling for like, okay, how do we stop the walls from closing in? And they're doing a lot of this kind of secret statecraft, sowing dissension, right? And these are things that, on the other hand, also like all kinds of states have done in all kinds of ways for decades or even for centuries. And but we're kind of becoming aware of it in a new way now. It's mm -hmm. almost like now you you like can't miss it where previously it could fly under the radar. Now it's kind of blown out into the open. And you're forced to deal with it very quickly. Like you don't mm -hmm. get you mm -hmm. don't get six years to find out that yeah. oh, that was caused by that person. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all in real time. And again, like the information 
gets out very quickly. But they have more, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm back to this, but to me, it's like, I think that America and Russia have the same, the same problems internally and externally too, though, which is like, they have, both countries are like run by an oligarchy of capitalists of of you know very wealthy pretty corrupt people <laughs> sort of how i feel mm-hmm. i mean i'm taking corrupt really broadly here but co- like like corruption is the problem like i feel like in both places like as, sort mm. of as a result of the way that money and politics have intermingled um there's yeah. there's like real civil rights concerns in both countries like putin like i don't know i guess he banned gay people or something like that oh yeah well yeah. and also in the the muslim regions and chechnya and Dagestan. Right. i mean there's huge issues but it's interesting when you think about the united states like in some ways, we're an exceptionally uncorrupt country mm-hmm. in that like in everyday interactions of like, I'm going to the DMV, mm-hmm. I'm going to the library, like you don't have to bribe people like right. we're very uncorrupt. And I think we have a very low tolerance for corruption in like face to face everyday dealings. And yet it's a very different story at the top. It's like the farther up you go in the power pyramid, mm-hmm. the more there is more latitude i suppose for corruption yeah there's there's so much room for corruption there's so much money there's so much power i mean we're still the big global economy mm-hmm. and there are so many people who are willing to throw money at influencing what the us government does you know and and there's so much value on getting into those back rooms and i think that there's a huge crisis now that in and again it's like maybe russia is sort of serving as like the funhouse mirror distorted image of ourselves in that people here increasingly feel that America is corrupt. And there's this bigger and bigger gulf between like what people feel they ought to put up with and what they see going on in like how people actually make decisions and set policy and people feel more and more powerless. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. And I think the question of how are we different from them has become highlighted again i think that's mm-hmm, all and, mm-hmm, and i don't yeah. i'm sort of curious about the because there's plenty of russian immigrants in america too that's like the i mean i don't know if that's relevant or irrelevant but i do find it strange sometimes when like you're you know the 14th time you watch a bond movie where like the stock villains all have russian accents and you're like people immigrate from there to here like there's 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 yeah. western russians like i don't know what we're <laughs> yeah yeah well there there are all kinds of there are russian americans i mean you think of like the deer hunter and mm-hmm. there's like it's sort of like well we're in a town in pennsylvania where like people are russian and like mm-hmm. what are you supposed to tell people when you like join the u.s army and you have this russian name yeah and there are americans and britons of of Russian descent, you know, Helen Mirren is like descended from like Russian immigrants. Oh, is she really left from the Russian Revolution? No wonder she liked Britain. the Catherine the Great role so much. She really yeah, did like she has that. a serious Russian connection. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it is. It's very awkward. And again, it goes to this these these paradoxes, right? Like we were talking about in the Americans of like, wait, like what what do we expect an American to be, look like, sound like? And I thought in The Americans, I thought the show sort of lagged in the middle, as Mm -hmm. I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. But an interesting part that I appreciated was when they start to talk. It's sort of like you see their Russianness more and more, little by little, as the show goes on. And you see them talk a little bit about their lives in Russia, which is forbidden, right? They're not supposed to talk about that. 
and naturally they mention the war right mm -hmm. the great patriotic war and the the incredible suffering and incredible loss and it sort of gives you some illustration of why there would be almost this this personal feeling of responsibility to strike back at the west right and but it's so and that interests me because i think that um Elizabeth really believes in communism. Mm -hmm. I, I think Elizabeth really believes in communism, so that's also like part of her mission. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that like the people fighting for Stalin were necessarily like believing in communism so mm -hmm. much right. as they yeah. were just like, "This is what you do." Like, you, well, you and, it, and, and it's interesting you point that out because I remember Philip talking more about. I remember the privation. I remember people in my family who died and. It's for him, I think it's more kind of seared into his his identity of like we went through the Great Patriotic War and maybe for him it really changes his his personality when he tries out being an American and mm -hmm. he has American friends mm -hmm. and he really wants friends and he like really he does. it's a big deal for him yeah. to have these friends and maybe for Elizabeth it's more ideological. It's more like I believe in the mission and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. I feel like a commonality that I've been hearing is just the, the, the myth of the 80s, both when it was being lived out and then also in hindsight, and then the way it's complicated by these retellings of the history or, or these stories that are, are just picking up on the the under life like the americans is fiction and stranger things is fiction but both point to a secret underground i know mean, yeah. it's, it's actually yeah. interesting that that's secretly underground even in the third season which doesn't have the upside down there's still a bunker at the bottom yes of the mall and it's it's to me that's like very on the nose too because it's like the mall which is like the seat of american capitalism and like burrowed underneath it very far down is like this little soviet base yes, that's yes. like secretly controlling it and it's like the deepest demagnetizing the magnets <laughs> but yeah i mean all of these shows somehow are about like discovering and excavating something mm -hmm, mm, something mm. that you weren't supposed to know something that you weren't supposed to see yeah i really think that's like a that it kind of creates a mood really through all of these shows mm -hmm. a mood of, of of secrecy and danger and yeah, and you, so you mentioned yeah, Leaving Neverland. Leaving Neverland. So, because I think that it's not technically exactly in the 80s, it's, it, although it begins Some then, of the events are in the 80s. It, some of them, that yes, yeah. About. So yeah. Did you see it as well? I did. Okay, yeah. So, Leaving Neverland is the four part docuseries. I'm sorry, is it four parts or two parts? Two parts. I remember two parts. Two part. Yeah. It's a, Leaving Neverland is a two part docuseries about two men's sexual abuse allegations against mm -hmm. Michael Jackson, if mm -hmm. you want to use the most legally correct term, uh, to, to quote Bojack Horson. Allegedly. allegedly. <laughs> it, is, it is technically. <laughs> it is technically um, alleged. And alleged. I think that the complete reign of Michael Jackson as the king of pop is something that I think is going to be difficult to explain to future mm -hmm. generations. Because mm -hmm. yeah. I don't think that that moment in time, the 80s, where America was, well, the 80s and into the 90s, so American triumphalism as well, where America is the king of the world, and then this homegrown pop star becomes this global superstar of 
un- mm-hmm. with unbelievable success. And at the same time is someone who was raised by an incredibly abusive father in a situation like in a, in a highly uh, performative performance-based situation, started being trained at a very young age, left his, I mean, if you look at the details of Michael Jackson's life, you sort of start to be in like, well, no wonder everything went, you know, he never went to school. He never went to college. He moved out of his childhood home straight into Neverland. He went from being a child. And I want to say he might've been, oh God, I can't remember his exact age, but he was like maybe in his twenties and he goes straight from his childhood bedroom and again allegedly with joe jackson but it doesn't nothing about joe jackson's parenting sounds super soft or great you know like not a super nurturing environment there to go straight from that into a fantasy place called neverland where as uh these two men in the docuseries uh wade uh robeson and james safeshuck um describe being between the ages of 8 and 13 and being repeatedly victimized among other people who they think were in the same boat. Uh, Their stories are very similar. Their stories match other stories. The most famous is a a boy named Jordy, um, who in whenever that trial, that the public trial was Mm -hmm. against uh, Michael Jackson, Jordy Chandler was the name of the kid who um, at the time was anonymous but put the allegations against him. The stories are are so similar. The stories are always, uh, are, are are often like the kid had boy had talent like Michael Jackson, idolized Michael mm-hmm. Jackson, mm-hmm. had parents mm-hmm. who encouraged these ambitions and tended to be a little bit more permissive with like what the kids could do, and then something that began as this like idolization relationship would turn into this what sort of seemed like a hectic friendship, like as if they were both in third grade and sending each other notes all the time. Our besties, yeah. Like the one of the most astonishing things is Wade Robeson, who lives in Australia, received faxes from Michael Jackson, would receive them like overnight or while he was at school. Again, he's eight and nine years old. And his mom said they would come home and the house would be covered in faxes from Michael Jackson, all like handwritten, like, like drawings. Like there was like a, a truly childlike element to yeah. the... To this, and then transitions for transitions from hanging out in concerts and after to sleepovers, and then to staying there for long periods of time, and then after both of these men have children, they start to have these intense traumatic flashbacks and and realize genuinely both of them, and this is how they say it, and this is how psychology works, although it's very confusing, that they like realize that they feel that they realize that they look back and they're like, this was wrong. This is this is stuff that happened that shouldn't have happened. So I think that like it just fits in well with some of the other things we're talking about because it is it's a documentary that is excavating underneath this myth, a myth that even at the time we knew was tarnished. I think that for all of the adulation that Michael Jackson got, there were always red flags, I think, about his behavior. Like just the fact that he he would do things with his like the plastic surgery or like his sort of like secretive lifestyle, like the Neverland. Like there were there were these questions that people raised, but the excavation couldn't happen until later. And yeah, I, I just yeah. think that's like a really it's like an interesting counterpoint, I think. I mean, maybe this is just the act of history, like we're just going back and relooking at what happened and then searching for more information. Yeah. Well, and they were groomed as kids. Right. Yeah. And so 
it's almost like it takes a certain amount of time for these people to mature to the point where they can reckon with everything that happened. So they, we're kind of getting the wave of that now. It's almost like a, gen, a little generation of Michael Jackson protégés yeah. who are now reckoning with it. And there, yeah, there's this odd paradox, this odd contradiction when you look at Michael Jackson and his conduct. It's like, on the one hand, here's someone who clearly didn't have normal relationships, didn't have a normal upbringing, did not really like learn how to deal with people as an adult, right? And had this childlike, you know, Peter Pan personality or persona, right? But at the same time, he clearly also really knew how to run a business, really knew how to produce a video, and really knew what had to be kept secret like really knew like i need to have this special double door on my room and i like these alarm systems and like trip locks i mean nobody installs a door like that unless right unless they have something they really don't want you to see yeah yeah Yeah. it's really like caligula's palace it's like he's it's like on the one hand it's like he's not a functioning person on the other hand it's like he really knew how to set these boundaries to protect himself and what he was doing whatever whatever was going on behind those closed doors it's so it's very confusing it's it's hard to know like what to think what to think of him and how his mind was working I mean it's interesting because you say that about the business and yet I think he was not a very good manager of his money like he overspent constantly and like he knew he was really talented like you cannot deny that and he clearly knew what people wanted to see from him I think that was there's no denying that yeah but well I think there's two ways of looking at that mm. because he did overspend and he was often in debt but at the same time, he owned the rights to so many of these valuable properties that were bringing him revenue. So it's like he could overspend and be in debt. And six months later, he'd mm-hmm. be flush with cash again. Mm-hmm. He just had constant income, mm-hmm. right? It's not like someone who inherits $100 million and blows it. It's like he had this income coming in. And he apparently, from what I have seen, he knew how to buy the right rights to the right songs and things like this yeah. to always have that huge income mm, interesting. right it's so there it's very complex and it was very i mean didn't you find it very emotionally draining to watch to just be like to have all of that new knowledge come at you so quickly and not knowing how to think about it like not being able to put yourself in the shoes of these people mm-hmm. who were having these experiences when they were nine years old well and like listening to their i mean it's interesting because you feel anger like you listen to their mm-hmm. mothers explain yeah. like what was happening and and the boys themselves both say they're men now but they both say that they have had serious conflict with their mothers since coming to these realizations because they're like how could you put me in this position and they interview the moms and they look shell-shocked the the australian one uh, wade's mom is like it's like she's awoken from a bad dream like Mm. that she just and and this goes back to the myth making to me i think it's just that like that was her narrative like she did not really live in a world where michael jackson could not be a safe person i it's funny i I yeah with both of the mothers I thought the American mother I kind of believed her more that like she sort of said I blew it like that mm-hmm. was her main explanation mm-hmm. was like I blew it I didn't keep my guard up when I should have I made this huge mistake the, to me the Australian mom was a little more mysterious of like what are you thinking and she seemed to still maybe have a little denial 
a little denial. It seemed like de- it seemed like it could have been denial. It yeah. could have been shame too. And sh- yeah, I'm sure there's it's shame. Just, yeah, it's very interesting. Like, I mean, to me, the family dynamics of something like this is interesting. This touches on something we were talking about before, but I think that like what really interests me about some of these large generational shifts or historical arcs is how the family unit is the one that processes it. Like the family unit is what is what yeah. receives it and transforms it and then trans- remits it out to the new generation. Mm. So with Wade in particular, after his son was born and his this all this came out and his wife like learned about all of this, his wife would not let Wade's mother into the house anymore. And it was yeah. like this was now it, it was personal. It was like this had been a personal thing. And this was not the myth of Michael Jackson anymore. This is like you betrayed me. Like that that sense of it. And I you know the Americans is a family drama. It is about and I think yeah. the, some of its best stuff at the fi- the end season is about how Elizabeth and Philip have to come to terms with the fact that these children are no longer going to be their children because they never really were like they weren't in good faith actually their children like they were raised on a lie and they you know and I think it illustrates yeah a lot of how the nuclear family is kind of like this little iconic world unto itself you know and it's the the 50s sitcoms kind of give you this image the nuclear family the 80s kind of tried to keep that Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. right even though that's not how a lot of people have lived. Mm-hmm. Like there's always been extended families, mixed families. Now there's a lot of mixed families. Now there's unmarried parents. Like all of this is common. And how in a way like the nuclear family is its own little like theatrical production it's that has to be maintained. Yeah, yeah it's this yeah. performance. And and I'm sure it's really great and works really well for a lot of people. But nonetheless, it's like there's always there's always multiple layers behind the facade, right? And how it's like almost like how far are you going to dig <laughs> into? You can you can chart like, I mean, I guess Cheers is a little, when does Cheers start? But if that you- That started early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah. So if you look at like uh, the 70s, Norman Lear shows, a lot of family sitcoms, like different mm-hmm. families, mm-hmm. like you have yeah. the Jeffersons, you have different yeah. strokes, whatever. Uh, One Day at a Time, which they did a remake of too, but that's a single mother. And then in the 90s, you get Friends and Seinfeld and Frasier and mm-hmm. Cheers is, I think, in that group yeah. too, even though it's earlier. And it's like these groups of friends and it's like not the nuclear family anymore. It's interesting, yeah. like the, yeah. the transition. Roseanne is in the 80s and that is a huge hit at that time. And that is a working class family on TV. But yeah. that might be... Starts like right at the end of the 80s. I yeah, think yeah, yeah. it goes oh, into 90s. Right. I, yeah, yeah, I've Roseanne, yeah. I watched all the way through. I watched all the way through. And mm-hmm. it was so... It, it was wonderful and I loved seeing Roseanne and it was sort of a revelation having this, yeah, people who like have money troubles being on TV, mm-hmm. like, you know, and who weren't always like polite and the mom who wasn't always smiling and, and making dinner. And, but, but to go back to how Michael Jackson mm, like really mm. fits into all of this, mm. he, in a way he, he really masters, right. The mass media, he masters like video, television, radio, and he, becomes so supreme again like at this last point where maybe that was possible before like media really fragment and specialize yeah and it's just not it's no longer the case that everyone all throughout the world can turn on the radio or the tv and see the same person right so he he's kind of maybe irreplaceable in that way 
And I thought it was really interesting how you can see allusions maybe to Michael Jackson in the movie Us. Mm, which, which I have not seen. You have not me. seen? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I really liked it. Looked it looked really scary. <laughs> it's scary. It's yeah, scary. I was like, no. <laughs> and, you know, it's by the same maker who made Get Out. Mm. And I think Get Out is wonderful partly because it's so tight and it has this like little clockwork plot line everything so precise us is a little more it's imaginative it's a little more loose there are like different strands going in different directions but the central premise is that there's a nuclear family living their lives trying to live like a nice american life go on a little vacation and it turns out that this entire time they're they have had an evil doppelganger copy of themselves living in like an underground world (laughs) that is now emerging to come and get them. And it all kind of explodes from there. So it's like... It's the underground world scene. Is it flipped? Like, what is it? What what it is, is it's like an underground complex, like beneath Santa Monica, I think. It's somewhere in California. There's like an underground complex with classrooms living quarters like a whole some kind of scientific base or something underground and there's this population this group of maybe a few hundred or so people who are copies of other people who live in the real world and they mimic them they Mm. mimic all their actions Mm. they copy them and at some point it seems they're preparing to like emerge and take their place so it's like all the exact same themes Mm -hmm. we've been talking about Mm. and what what we're seeing is ostensibly present day Mm -hmm. right but there are flashbacks and memories of the 80s right so the the woman played by lupita nyong oh yeah who plays both copies of herself like totally masterfully yeah she has these vague memories from her childhood where she thinks she saw her copy. And now in present day, she's afraid that her copy self, her doppelganger is coming back like to get her. Right. And there are further twists beyond that, which I won't give away, but that's the basic idea. She has this anxiety of like the other me that I saw in the mirror is now coming back to get me. And so it's very scary and it's, and all the, all these actors play themselves and their copies like at once. And I had been thinking about it and like, what does this mean? Like, does this, is this saying something about the eighties? And like, there are these little allusions to like hands across America and these weird like PR gimmicks from the eighties. And when the evil doppelganger family shows up, they're wearing like red and black jumpsuits and one glove Oh, wow, wow. Yeah, and I hadn't really put it together. I was like, what is this about? What does this mean? And I read some review somewhere that was like, notice the one glove. Yeah, reminiscent of Michael Jackson in concert. Yeah. And Michael Jackson also took part in Hands Across America. Right, of course. And it's like, oh, what does this mean? And I think the movie came out before Leaving Neverland, Right. right? But the stories about Michael Jackson right. well predate yeah. Leaving Neverland, just to be clear. Yeah. 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 So it seems like, and you know, it's an African-American family. Yeah. And it's like, it seems like there's maybe a, a little reference to the sort of anxiety people felt at grappling with Michael Jackson and his 
possible guilt, you know, and his possible crimes. And to like to me, because because I think especially when you're talking like black filmmaker depicting black family, at least one black family, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. Michael Jackson being like a black American pop star was this like thing that was championed even as I think the unfair burden of trauma that is carried by black people in America just because Mm -hmm. of systemic Mm -hmm. inequality I think it was like a blindness to that, like a blindness to the pain or to the suffering or to the the deprivations that must have existed in order for these people to be so smiling and so sunny and to be America's family, um, if that makes yeah. sense. Like, I think that it's like this interesting myopia. I mean, I'm actually now I'm just like going through the annals, but I'm also thinking about Bill Cosby right now, which sort yeah, of has like yeah. this other like America's dad, like kind of thing. He really created the ideal nuclear family. Yes, right, right, yeah. right, right. And yeah, it's very hard. It's a very hard, very thorny situation because there is a really long history of false accusations of black men being sexual predators. Especially against white women, right? Especially against white women, right? And with Bill Cosby, many of his victims were white women, right? Not all. And in Michael Jackson's case, the, the alleged victims are children, are, you know, as far as we know, are boys. And boys, yeah. Yeah. But still, it's like, it's, it, it's so hard again to weigh evidence impartially it's like what does that mean like what is an impartial standpoint Mm -hmm. for judging the evidence against someone and who gets that role right of being the impartial judge and yeah maybe maybe we should leave it off soon because i feel like that is what i was thinking about with oj simpson Mm -hmm. and like the the people versus Mm -hmm. oj simpson Mm -hmm. is like yeah, that was revealing to me because I remember a, a certain amount of the O.J. Simpson trial. I remember that being constantly in the news in 1995, yeah. right? And then I did it did give me a new, different perspective seeing it dramatized and just seeing it as an adult and thinking, oh, yeah, like that Mark Furman, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I just didn't know when <sighs> I was... A little kid well and and i didn't know what the la riots were when i was that age like mm-hmm, i mm-hmm. i was too young for them and we didn't live near there so i didn't have any conception of that being of that trial in la being in a historical context like i didn't know what who Rodney yeah. King was like i didn't know what that was yeah and i i think that that's one of the most exciting things about these stories is that they're helping us create connections that I don't Mm, think it was quite as easy to do before like because for example like at the 25th anniversary of the LA riots which I they made a bunch of movies documentaries about it and I like watched them all for a piece I wrote and I didn't know that the LA riots were intimately connected to the Watts riots from the 60s that were like in a similar geographic area and just like how this is like lived history it's not this wasn't a random thing that happened and like how we now in 2020 are looking back at something 40 40 30 to 40 years ago and going how does this connect to us like how can we draw the lines and these i think these these filmmakers these these television makers are looking for them too i do feel like it comes a little bit from a sense of like the pot is sour like i don't know if that is like an actual thing but the well is poison the well is but thank you that's what yeah <laughs> it does it does come a little bit from like the well is poisoned why like how did it mm-hmm. get here yeah um, yeah and there's this horizon effect which is partly why like we were saying like 
this grappling with the 80s, there might be nostalgia, might be an element of it, but that's mm. not all. It's the fact that we're looking back at things we can remember, but they're the farthest back we can remember. So we don't know what set the scene. Like right. there, our memory drops off right. just before this. Right. So we can't see those connections unless we go revisit it and, and excavate, right? right. What do you think? I'm, I know that we, we won't talk about actual history anymore, but I am curious what you think about television as a tool of history because I think that uh, for me, it's really exciting to explore mm -hmm. history purely, mostly as an amateur, to just be like, take me into this era, take me into this decade, take me into this thing. I didn't really know very much about it. And now I know more, even if it's like the dramatic, like made for TV version. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And it's kind of a sensitive question because mm -hmm. I know a lot of scholars just say TV is distortion. TV is it's fake reality. But I actually, I don't think, I think it depends a lot on how you use it. And I think that it's part of like an ongoing process of interpreting and reinterpreting history. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very interesting that when, when history is dramatized, very often the first thing a lot of people ask is, is that accurate? Did that really happen? And then they Google it. Which and is then they start looking it up or they yeah. ask someone, is that accurate? And I think like, that is both a good question and it's good that people are thinking that it's also at the same time not adequate because the other the other side of the coin i guess that i try to get across is like all history is myth making mm -hmm. in some way mm -hmm. so you you can't just ask is that accurate did they do that right or wrong it's like you have to ask what is the version of the story they're trying to present what is the myth they're trying to weave for you and what agenda does that serve maybe and what other ways are there of looking at it too right so on the one hand you can just sort of fact check and say like was the emily watson character a real person or no on the other hand you have to say okay what is the overarching story they're trying to present to you and how else could we look at it and mm -hmm. how else could we tell mm -hmm. that story, mm -hmm. right? So so I don't, I'm not against it. I think that people have to go into it with skepticism, knowing this may be inaccurate. And also, even if it is technically factually accurate, it's still trying to tell a certain kind of story. Right. It still hasn't, it, it, it can't avoid having some angle or some myth-making or, or, or some, yeah, yeah. some imposition. Someone yeah. had to, I mean, it's an extremely complicated process figuring out what are the scenes going to be? Who are we going to see? And what are, how is it going to unfold for the audience? And that has to be ideologically driven to some degree. You have to have some vision right you're trying to get across so i guess the next the next step i try to push people to is say like let's not just think there's like the correct accurate history let's mm -hmm. think of like what we're doing when we make historical stories and myths that's how i yeah that's how i would think it's a great it. answer of, of course it's a great Thank answer you. Um, <laughs> well it I see, I think it was just going to keep happening if you want my TV perspective, because mm -hmm. I think that like existing IP, as we like to call it, history is just existing IP. Do you know what IP is? Um, like internet protocol? Intellectual property. So oh, okay. intellectual property, <laughs> no, it's fine. So um, I'm trying to think of a good example here. Um, so like, you know, the entire Marvel universe is based on existing IP, basically like existing yeah. comic okay. narratives. 
But then if you um, are pitching your new TV show, it might be more convenient if you have a book that you can point to or that was already popular that it is based on. Or a lot of studios that already own the rights to things will just use those rights to create new things rather than try to like dig around for a new original story just because getting the rights to things can be so complicated and owning the rights to something is so much of the battle for these big studio things. So anyway. There there is an incredible, I think you're right, there's an incredible fund of material in history. I mean, life is, (laughs) truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And And people love it. I don't know, Mm. uh, just just anecdotally, but Mm. Chernobyl was a sensation. Like Chernobyl was not supposed to be as successful as it was. I think I say this very brazenly, but I I feel that I know this to some degree. You know, it's a co-production with uh, HBO and Sky, which is like a British company. And a lot of the ones that are co-productions, especially right now, HBO has been like ramping up its output. So a lot of the things that are a co-production with England are sort of like, we just need a little bit more content right now. Like, can we get this over here? Like, it's not going to be one of our flagships. Like Watchmen, for example, that was like their big flagship, uh, HBO's big flagship this spring. Or sorry, this this past fall. I know what day it is. But something like Chernobyl is kind of like, like they did this Catherine the Great miniseries too. They're like, we know our core subscribers are going to love this historical shit. But like, it you had know. the formula. Yeah. It wasn't, it's not that it's formulaic. It's more that it's just like, I can see how that, how it got greenlit so easily, mm-hmm. especially because it's like Russia, like very interesting topic. Like, uh, we love Helen Mirren. We, we love yeah. we love English accents. Like yeah. this is all it all it like checks a lot of boxes. Jared Harris, the king of prestige TV. You know, you, there's there's so many easy ways, and I think it exceeded. It went beyond that too, because like, look, I, I saw Catherine the Great, and it's fine, but it didn't feel like it had that extra kick that Chernobyl has where it pushes it all back on you and says, well, what do you think about this? Or like, Mm, does this feel like Mm. your memory of who these people are versus who? And like, how can we use that information now? Yeah. Catherine the Great is just, you know, it's just like, look at the dresses she wore. And that's fine too. I'm just saying like, I think it's really interesting that those questions work for people. Like when, when they see us debuted, it was briefly like the most, like the most watched thing in black households according to netflix like just mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. everyone turned it on and it's really hard to watch so maybe they turned it off like immediately who knows but <laughs> but like it's it intrigues me that this has purchase people live history they want to understand what's happening to yeah. them and they yeah. they really matter it matters to them like what happened to the world and, thing, and things strike you as relevant in 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 surprising ways yeah. but, and would you say that when you watch television do you do you like process a historical fiction or docudrama show depicting history differently from how you process just fiction like would you do you do you react to something like chernobyl differently from the way you might react to like i don't know battlestar galactica or or that oh, may I be see. an extreme example but yeah 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 do you do you and do you feel like you you have a different set of critical questions when you see something that's depicting history that's for sure true yeah, yeah. i definitely because you have to because you're playing you're it's it's a higher stakes game i think that's how i take it which is like so like Battlestar, actually it's a great example because then i feel like it's a useful like total polar opposite because Battlestar is like the story affects no one. Like, if that makes sense, like, silence aren't a real constituency. So, as far as I know, so we yeah, don't... Yeah, that was my feeling. I don't know. So we... <laughs> and, and, like, those planets aren't real places. So they they are yeah. existing, put in their space. But as soon as it starts moving closer to 
the things that are documented or things that are discussed or people whose mm-hmm. lived realities mm-hmm. are are in the world then it's like well how does it intersect with those things i mean like in the yeah. and and that was to go back to to chernobyl for a second again i think i think we were talking about this before but so now russia is going to create like a russian production company is going to create a russian history of chernobyl with with i believe russian actors and in russian yeah and it is because the english language one was like wildly popular in russia and like wow. people didn't know or they knew but they didn't know the whole story and they are kind of like well fuck this biased version but they Mm. would still rather know than not know I think and there's like Mm. anecdotally there were there are these monuments to liquidators throughout uh, the area around Chernobyl and like people were leaving flowers at them for the first time in years like people had never like again it's just not knowing what it is or what it means and now I I'm curious about like I, I feel I, I'm very like I don't know anything about these reports that I heard or about the climate in Russia about um, American British production and what that would mean. But I do think that like it having legs really fascinates me. Like it having legs in Russia just like really fascinated me. That, that like is very interesting. There's an appetite for our history. I think that's like well, it's like it's a little beautiful. bit of an echo of what happened in the Soviet period too, where American literature, Western literature, sometimes journalism about the Soviet Union would be circulated like, you know, underground in manuscript. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious about about that project you brought up. I know. Like, I'm desperate to see it. I mean, it, yeah. it will it will necessarily cost much less money, too. So it's curious, like, how they will. Because uh, one of the great things about Chernobyl is that you never, you really can't look at a nuclear reactor, like, inside of it. Because it's just a, a reaction that's happening. Like, it's just... It's just energy, like, but they find a way to depict to you, like, the gravity of what's happening by, like, those rods are coming up, and you're like, each of those rods weighs a ton, like, this can't be good, and, like, all of the Geiger counters and stuff. It's difficult to ramp up so much suspense for something that is essentially unseeable, so it'll be interesting to see how they do that part of it, too. I'm interested in that. Yeah, 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 and how how different the human dramas are, too. That's really interesting. interesting Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, maybe a good, a good, place to wrap up mm. if you're ready is is the Al- I believe Albert Einstein quote about nuclear power he said it's a hell of a way to boil water because <laughs> that's all that the reactors ultimately do is just boil water to turn turbines oh really yeah yeah oh. it's the heat the heat for the radiation boils the water and I'm curious to know what you think about all kinds of other things both about television depicting earlier Mm. history you know Mm. victoria all these things we Mm. haven't mentioned Mm. and also about maybe is this pattern going to roll on up into the 90s Mm -hmm. you know like are we going to have a similar reckoning is this now going to be part of how we process history yes i think it's heading that way i think absolutely yeah because i think that something about there's a few different like finance like economic reasons why the scripted series is just like the hottest thing in the world like it fits on a platform Mm. in a nice way it takes up a nice amount of time it it's it's monetizable in a way like feature films aren't I I don't really understand but like it's weird I I should understand more but it's a little confusing why it's easier to watch eight episodes of something versus like a 90 minute movie in a theater and like mainly Mm, the difference seems to be it's at home but anyway um Yes, I, I would point to true crime as like a big like precursor to this because I think that like the true true crime podcast, true crime miniseries, like things like Mindhunter, but also like the act, like Making a Murderer, which is Making like on the docu- 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 yeah. docu-series side. And these are interesting too because like 
we've moved it moves away from history and more towards journalism with with something like making a murderer mm-hmm. in terms of like mm-hmm. the rules that you're supposed to follow yeah but as a viewer you have no idea if they followed like what yes. what their integrity or their ethics are or or what their process is like sometimes they will show you their process and sometimes they're not showing you their process and yes what- and and this is making of a murderer i thought was very powerful we don't have oh. to get into it but oh. it was a very powerful experience there were brief moments oh where I noticed some things and I said, wait a second, they're not explaining that. Mm-hmm. What's that about? Mm-hmm. And I found out later, like, okay, well, there are other aspects to the story here that they are not emphasizing in with a, in making of a murderer. You know, regardless of what that means, regardless of what the ramifications are, there, yeah. this it was a selective presentation. And I kind of had to grapple for a minute with, like, was I not thinking in the same critical way while watching that show as I would have if it was a dramatization with actors. Right. But because it was real footage, because it was real documents, I was using, I was not asking the same questions. And so that's a whole other arena that sort of troubles me sometimes is like, how do people respond? Or, you know, or when it comes to the case against Adnan Syed, yeah. Like, yeah. like I, you know, I can extrapolate what I think my best conclusions are, but I'm still, am I consuming it the way I should as a historian and the way I would if it was a depiction of Queen Elizabeth in the 16th century, right? right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So what what definitely seems true to me is that like these reinterpretations and retellings of things that are true are going to proliferate partly because mm-hmm. they're more interesting to experience than yeah. than the bald facts of the truth they thing, tap into a typically. different part of your brain they tap, yeah. yeah they they tend to tap into the human it's telling a story it's storytelling like this is really yeah, like a big, yeah. but but i think that um it's great that like a lot of this information is available on the internet like you can google what really happened mm-hmm. in chernobyl you'll get like pretty good results like it's going to be confusing but you'll get pretty good results okay but like with some cases that haven't been reported fully with really recent history, it might be harder to Google these things. It might be harder yeah, to find. Yeah. So that's where it's like, we're gonna, we're just, we're really what it seems to me is we're muddying our own footprints a little bit, especially with some of the like, like recent history. Like Right, well, and this is part of why I thought I have mixed feelings about television, history mm-hmm. on television, is that I do also believe that if you have a certain series of events and a series of characters, it can be very hard to process, it can be very complicated, and seeing someone act a scene out on a screen can be extremely helpful. It gives you this touchstone of, oh, you're talking about this person who pushed this button and this button meant this. It gives you a whole kind of avenue of access to then be able to read about it and, and understand more. And I think that's part of what people then know and feel when they ask is this accurate it's they're saying i have now been given this set of visuals and sounds that i can now use to then investigate more of what really happened so i so yeah that's part of why i'm maybe more positive about it than some other historians are i feel positive about it too i i I feel i mean i'm coming from a different angle but i i definitely feel the concern of of confusion but on the whole I don't think telling stories out of our history is new. And no. I think telling inaccurate <laughs> stories is definitely not, not new. <laughs> so so I think that it's it's just our way of evolving, our way of telling our, our own myth making. Like we yeah. but we also 
we are encouraging each other to fact check, which is interesting. Like, like I think that's an interesting yeah. part of it. No one was watching like Henry V, you know, Shakespeare's Henry V and going like, what did that? <laughs> was Falstaff really a guy though? <laughs> like, or... Yeah. Well, too bad they didn't have smartphones. <laughs> but I think this was, I think this is a really good place to then think about maybe we'll have more conversations yes, in the future about thanks, different kinds of history. Thanks and for having me, Sam, on your cool podcast. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. As, as, as usual, a very interesting conversation with Sonia. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hello. Hi. Yay. Oh, good. It's okay. working. Good. We both seem to be coming through. Okay. I think that the, have you heard my line about this? I think the cat dog dichotomy is false, just like the gender dichotomy. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. There's a spectrum. There's a, there's a spectrum. Everyone identifies the way they want to. There's no need to put people in boxes. That's what yeah. I think. So. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Sam. It's nice to be here in, in my living room talking about whatever we're talking about. We are in Sonia's living room. Yeah, do you, do you want to go over anything anymore or do you feel like, do you just want to jump in and see what happens? I think we should just jump in and see what happens because I feel like we already hit, we already got to some interesting okay. material, but my water's going to start boiling. So yes. You okay. Can, you can first. Okay. Awesome. I'm going to work on my tight five. This is my stand up routine. I feel like while I'm holding <laughs> a microphone, I should be doing stand up. So I'm, I should think of a joke. Yeah. No um, pressure to be funny. No pressure. Right? I have no comedic strengths. <laughs> you know, did that once she told me that that she she, she just, just signed up with like no plan and just tried it out and she's she's got the chutzpah to do that she does yeah, yeah. she's yeah. she's sometimes all chutzpah